Welcome to the ATM Club. My name is Stuart James and I'm a psychological thriller and horror author. My books include Apartment 6, The House on Rectory Lane, Turn the Other Way and Stranded. I'm joined by top book bloggers Zoe O'Farrell and Chloe Jordan. Today on the show we talk with best-selling author of Man and Boy and editor of Enemy, Tony Parsons. There's more mayhem with Donna, Kate, Chloe and Zoe who will be discussing more books at the Five Star Bar. We have loads of your terrifying ghost stories true crime, unsolved mysteries, the weird and wacky stories of the week, your best advice as posted on our Facebook page, The ATM Club, a review of horror movie Before I Go to Sleep, and loads of laughs. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. I've got a cracking unsolved mystery, The Girl in the Box. Oh my God. It's like mental. She's She's hitchhiking. Um, and she gets like across America and she basically gets uh, I read lifts. that one. Oh my god it's so good Chloe isn't it and she basically gets lifts from loads of different people but she's skeptical do you know what I mean and then she, yeah. she gets a lift from this this couple um, he's like 22 she's 27 or something and they have a little eight-month-old baby and the eight-month-old and she's like oh I'll get in with them they're, they're fine they've got a little kid they only bring her back to the house and lock her in a box. A little I've box seen it, yeah. I've seen it. Oh my god, yeah. Oh my god, it's like what? So that's my mystery. And she has like on. a head box. She has a box yeah, on her head. And on her head, so she can't hear. Yeah, it. I've read that. Yeah. Oh my god, there's a documentary oh. about it as well. I think it's on the Historic Channel, but yeah. That's, yeah, she um, she was kept for um, something like fifteen years, wasn't she? Seven, seven years yeah. she was kept, and she eventually escaped. Weird and well, here's a jingle up I was thinking about. Weird and wacky <laughs> stories of the week. <laughs> I can't sing. Can you sing solo? solo I can't sing can't, anything. Solo, we can't hear. You. <laughs> so um, we're going to give you a little festival. I think it's a fix, you know, because that's two weeks yeah, on the trot. I think Stu's choosing the films that he knows are going to win rather than ones. I get all my friends to just keep pressing, pressing my film. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> Do you know what? Oh, Stu? I've been sussed. I've been sussed. If he puts that up on a Sunday, I wouldn't put it past you to be messaging everyone going, can you vote for this film? Yeah, that's what I do. That's what See, I, I make do. a point of not saying who's chosen what film just so that it's fair. And yeah, yeah I well, See, that's I the thing. I, I pick cracking films. I pick great films. I'm, I, you know we I mean? pick films we want to watch. <laughs> right, so ever since a vicious attack nearly claimed her life, Christine Lucas, Nicole Kidman, has suffered from anterograde amnesia and is unable to form new memories. Every morning, she becomes reacquainted with her husband, Ben, Colin Firth, and the other constants in her life. In accordance with her doctor's, the really hot Mark Strong, instructions, Christine keeps the video diary. (laughs) As Christine starts to uncover terrifying truths about her past, she begins to question everything and everyone around her. Okay, so, um, do you know what? Um, I watched this film. uh, Sorry. You think he's hot, do you? Oh, he's, yeah. He I is. Do. Oh, he's yummy. Dr. Nash. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. he's yummy. Oh, him in Blimmin' Kingsman. I mean, I know this is a side, but I don't normally like bald men. I mean, Jason Statham, yeah, The Rock, yeah, but that's it. But Mark Strong, oh, my God, just hearing his voice. You know, <laughs> when you're in the cinema and it says, 
it's time to turn off your phones. And that's Mark Strong. I'm like, yeah, whatever you say, I'll do it. Oh, is that him? Yeah. Okay. I'm like, you I'll, really I'll do, do your it. research, Zoe, didn't you? No, it's just called I'm a geek and I know these things. <laughs> and do you turn the phone off? Oh, mine's on silent all the time anyway. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, the film starts obviously with Nicole Kidman waking up next to Colin first. She goes into the bathroom and she's all confused and then she comes back out of the bathroom and she's asking who her husband is. And the story is that she wakes up every morning and forgets the day before. Um, now, um, I read the book and I absolutely loved the book. How do you compare the book to the film? Oh, I I haven't read the book, so I've literally only watched the film. Yeah. yeah I right. read the book when it came out, so it's been a while. And then How I watched the them? film when it came out. Um, I mean, obviously, there's, there are a few changes, because a lot of it obviously can't relate to the screen. Um, but I just remember the book being really intense, because obviously, and it's all more focused on the past and her trying to remember everything more than it is in the film because in the film it's more present day isn't it it's her yeah. day to day and I, if I remember rightly in the book they do a lot more with her trying to f I think there's a lot more going on yeah. um I can't remember though to be honest it's been so long since I read the book yeah. I just remember I just thought it was so cleverly done I mean obviously it's had influence from like Memento you know yeah. the film with Guy Ritchie and, uh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, Guy Pearce sorry that's the one that goes backwards isn't it yeah 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 it's still i knew the twist it's hard to review this one i think without giving anything away yeah because a lot can't of say too much about this one quite quickly yeah. doesn't it what about you chloe what do you what did you think of the film tell us the I good points it. and bad points if there are any bad points. i think it was really well done um i really really liked it um honestly i i was sat here and i couldn't stop watching it yeah mm. It was, it was and and I didn't even like it. Didn't even twig in my head that that was what was wrong. Yeah. Um, obviously, I don't want to give it away for anyone I mean, that there has is a, it. There is a phenomenal twist, isn't there? Yeah, but yeah, I didn't even never. see that coming. As someone that like reads and watches that kind of thing all the time, yeah, I never saw that coming. Yeah, well, never. that twist is so well covered up, isn't it? It's like. You, you just you it's one of those tw those twists you you wouldn't see coming really unless you've read the book no not when until read, they start showing it yeah when i read the book no, and, and then when when like she accuses dr nash yeah like, i and then he goes after her with the with the needle i, I was like what yeah so, so <laughs> like, for those... that's when i messaged you and i was like what the hell is going on yeah <laughs> Those who don't know, she uh, is a, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and he's trying to help her. And he rings yeah, her every probably morning. Yeah, psychologist. Yeah. yeah, he rings her every morning and he tells her who she is, what her life's about. Um, then she, she, he gets her to keep a video diary of her life mm. so that she's yeah. not confused and he's telling her more But and then more. she starts to remember herself, doesn't she? And she yeah. remembers to look at the camera. Yeah, and she starts to suspect um, that Dr. Nash might not be really out for she her thinks purposes. She he's or, the know. one that tried to kill her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't say, obviously, if he is um, or not, but she starts to suspect. I have to say, as someone that is, like, really funny about watching people that she doesn't like, so, like, I won't even 
entertaining oh, looking at something that's got David Tennant in it. Like, I hate him. I don't like him on screen. don't like his voice. What? I will not watch anything with him in it. But what? I don't like David Tennant. I don't like oh, him. He's a fabulous actor, David Tennant. He's amazing. I, I, I do not like him, I and I will not watch anything with me. him in it. Boy, even, I can't believe what you're saying about me. Oh, David Tennant is so hot as well. What is wrong with Look, you? He's I, 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 will try, I will drive against the lockdown rules to punch you in the face. <gasps> like, no. Um, oh, that's a so horrible I... threat. <laughs> <laughs> that's how strongly I feel about David Tennant. I do not like him. Oh, um, so I don't like Nicole Kidman either. Oh, not this again. So well, I do don't like what? her. I don't like her either, but... Oh, she I always plays her. a really depressing part. No, she doesn't. In The Others, in Far and Away, she was quite a depressive. In Dead Calm, she was quite a depressive. In, in this film, she yes. was a depressive. and she always has a miserable-looking face. Yeah, yeah. Have yeah, you yeah, seen she, To Die For? I, I'm with you, Chloe. I'm with you on this. No, no. Have you watched To Die For? She's not depressing in that. I haven't with seen Dylan. But oh, she always funny. looks like she's been slapped around the face with a wet fish. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, um, our guest next lady. weekend, Saturday, is is Nicole Kidman, who's coming on the show. Fantastic. And, uh, yeah, we can't I'll wait for that. Cool. So, you, so you don't like her then, Chloe? I'll give, I'll give her tips on how to smile. <gasps> so because she doesn't we, do it a lot. What are we giving there? What are we giving before I go to sleep? <sighs> Well, if you ignore the glaring plot holes, which again we can't talk about because it will ruin it for everybody else, because there's quite a few glaring plot holes, um, I would give that probably an eight, eight and a half. Yeah. What about you, Chloe? Yeah, I'd go an eight. Eight. Okay, I'm giving it an eight as well. I think it was a oh my tough God. Film, great story. I didn't <laughs> give it a ten this week, did I? Do we all agree? Jesus Christ, you didn't give it a ten. No. Well, that's what I'm saying. Eight. Oh my God, no ten. I'm giving it eight. Okay, we're going to be back in a minute. We've got uh, This and That featuring Chloe Jordan. See you in a minute. Today I'm going to share with you some fun facts about the film we reviewed before I go to sleep. In the novel, Christine's diary is in the form of a journal, notebook, whereas in the film, she has a camera. Director Rowan Joffe had originally been given the manuscript of the film by TV producer Liza Marshall with no cover. Initially reading and thinking it was a memoir, straight drama in novel form, he was shocked to discover it was a thriller as he read more. Director Rowan Joffe's own mother suffers from amnesia. In the book, Christine is a 47-year-old woman, whereas in the film, she's 40. This was the last feature film to use the Fuji 35mm film stock. Production of this film stock ceased at this time. In the first few minutes of the film, when Colin Firth shows Kidman the board of things she needs to remember, strawberries are listed as an allergy of Christine's. Nicole Kidman is actually allergic to strawberries in real life. At the end of the novel, S.J. Watson notes that though this is totally fictitious, it's actually inspired by actual medical cases, particularly that of Clive Wearins, the British museologist, conductor and BBC music producer, who has the same condition as Christine. Albert, his is an even shorter memory span, just a minute or so. 
His real-life accounts have been recorded by his loving wife, Deborah Weirin, in her book, Forever Today, A Memoir of Love and Amnesia. And for studying for this film, Nicole Kidman watched a documentary on Clive Weirin. And that are your fun facts this week on Before I Go to Sleep. There was a beautiful teacher in a secondary school. She was very stylish and she loved to wear high heels and that became her signature look. She was also a very wicked teacher. She flogged the living daylights out of her students every chance she got. Some said she was a straight up sadist and used being a teacher as an excuse to inflict extreme pain and torture whenever she pleased. Her students, tired of the school management's failure to reprimand her, decided to take matters into their own hands. One night, as she was leaving the school, the students cornered her, gagged her so she wouldn't scream, and began to beat her mercilessly. One of them even took one of her shoes and beat her with it. Then she stopped moving. They'd overdone it. She was dead. The students panicked. They threw her body over the school back fence and ran. People were going to assume armed robbers did the damage. They were in the clear, or so they thought. One by one, the students began to vanish. All but one, the one who had hit her with the shoe. He constantly told everyone what he and the others had done and that he heard the sounds of high heels clacking around his hostel every night, which he believed meant that she was coming for him, but no one believed him. They thought he was just trying to scare them. One night, he decided to go out where the sound was coming from. He never returned. His body was found in the morning. He'd been beaten to death. The school was shut down and all the kids were sent home. These kids, now knowing that the boy was right all along, spread the legend to their new schools. She walks the halls of hostels at night tormenting students. And it's also said if you peep to look at her, you'll disappear and will never be seen again. Oh my God, I've just seen question 20 here. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I know, God. I'm dreading, I am so, dreading payback here, you know. So we're back with This or That and Chloe Jordan. Are you ready for your This or That questions? 20 questions, you have to answer them as fast as you can. No thinking. <laughs> you ready? Okay, here we go. Three. Hang on, hang on. Three. <laughs> <laughs> Two. Oh, very, very clever. One. Spring or autumn? Spring. Comedy or romance? Comedy. Uh, I want quicker answers in this, please, love. Jesus. Love songs or pop songs? Pop. English or Irish? Irish. Book or Kindle? Oh! No. Say it quick. Kindle. <laughs> Wine or gin? Gin. Toilet paper over or under? Over. Month without your car or a month without the internet? What would you prefer? Month without the internet. Batman or Superman? Batman, because that's me. I was going to do Batman or Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Be an FBI agent or a police detective? Love that question, Zoe. FBI agent. Text message or phone call? Text message. Facebook or Instagram? 
Insta. Uh, shower or bath? Shower, but I've only got a bath. Choose how to die or when to die. What a classic question, Zoe. <laughs> how to die. New pens or new notepads? You're thinking too new much here. KFC or McDonald's? Hard. Huh? KFC or McDonald's? McDonald's. Halloween or Valentine's Day? Neither. Okay. You've got to pick one. No, you had a pass Halloween, last Valentine's week. <laughs> All right, sunrise or sunset? Right, that's your that's your pass. You can't pass on any of the other sunrise. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be on Simon's coming. <laughs> TV shows or movies? TV shows. Stew or zoo? <laughs> oh, just look up on the shelf and remember them three signed books. Remember who Robin is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to because I'm missing a signed book. What? what? <laughs> oh my God. You buy well, only one because you had to send her a signed book. <laughs> well, that's getting cut out. <laughs> what, like your Stephen Queen? Stephen King Queen. Stephen, Stephen Queen. Queen. <laughs> Stephen Queen. Oh yeah, has he changed his name, has he? That was fun. Right, that ends the quiz. Uh, this or that. Thank you, Chloe Jordan, for taking part. <laughs> See you I in a minute. Welcome. <laughs> Don't I'm mute her. I muted her. I can unmute myself. Oh my God, this so... is not good. <laughs> the there must be that. some sort of function here. Let me have a look that I can just mute the two. You're trying to mute me because I slagged off an author that, I, that you liked. <laughs> <laughs> right, welcome back to the Unsolved Mystery section. I've got a story here and it's all the facts about the girl in the box, the terrifying case of Colleen Stan. In 1977, Cameron Hooker seized 20-year-old Colleen Stan and held her prisoner in his Northern California home for seven years. He predominantly kept Stan in a wooden box underneath the bed he shared with his wife, Janice Hooker. Initially, Cameron only released Stan from her confinement to beat her and to force her into engagements with intimate relations. After extended psychological coercion, Stan became a live-in babysitter and sex slave for the couple. Stan was able to survive her horrific ordeal and escape in 1984 with the help of his wife. She returned to her family, but was too terrified to report for the years of abuse and assault to the, to the police. She became known as the girl in the box and her story shocked people around the world. The true details of what happened to Stan and the crimes of her captors appear almost like an urban legend. On the morning of May the 19th, 1977, 20-year-old Colleen Stan decided to hitchhike from her home in Eugene, O.R., to Northern California to attend a friend's birthday party. She spent most of the day accepting rides from various strangers, slowly making her way to her destination. When a couple, Cameron, 23, and his 19-year-old wife, Janice, picked her up. Stan had turned a number of rides down before, uh, before the, she saw the couple's blue van, largely because she believed the couple, who were traveling with her eight-month-old eight daughter, were less dangerous than some of the other people who had offered her a lift. But just 30 minutes into the journey, the vehicle stopped in a remote area and Cameron held a knife to Stan's throat. 
He then forced a contraption on her head that had been designed to isolate her from the outside world. After capturing Stan, Cameron threatened her with a knife, gagged her, tied her up, and forced a heavy hinged box onto the 20-year-old's head. Cameron, who was a skilled carpenter, constructed the 20-pound wooden box so that it would fit snugly on the head of the wearer. He also lined the contraption with soundproofing material, making it impossible for Stan to see and difficult for her to hear. When Stan arrived at the Cameron and Janice's home in Red Bluff, California, they kept her in the basement where they physically harmed her and forced her to engage in intimate relations. On the night they kidnapped her, Cameron suspended Stan from the cellar's ceiling and beat her while his wife Janice watched. Then the couple had sex on the table underneath. Stan, who was still hanging from the ceiling by her wrists. During the time they held Stan captive in the Red Bluff house, the couple regularly whipped, beat, burned and electrocuted her. They also stretched her on a rack. In addition to her making her suffer physically, the couple deprived Stan of food and engaged in ritualistic rape. After being held captive for seven years, Stan finally felt it was safe for her to flee the couple's home. Janice helped in part after she realised her husband was probably going to leave her to Stan. Janice revealed to Stan that Cameron wasn't a member of the company the Forks Criminal Slave Organization, he said, was real. When Stan realized members of the company would hunt her down and kill her and her parents if she left, the young couple escaped with Janice's help and encouragement. In 1984, Janice dropped Stan off at a bus station. The woman who was being kept as a slave for seven years called her father and got money to buy a ticket back to her home in Oregon. Stan also called Cameron to tell him she had escaped and he reportedly cried when she told him she had left. Oh, man, what a story that is. Absolutely harrowing. It's horrible. And it's, um, I think it's documented on the Historic Channel, as I mentioned earlier. But, um, yeah, just a, a really harrowing story. And um, mm. how brave of her to escape though, after the seven years and to have the courage to get away. And what these two... I know, yeah. The, um, the thing around, like, Stockholm Syndrome and stuff fascinates me. Stockholm syndrome, yeah, yeah. When you actually, I was literally going to say that it's even, you could have gone them. one or two ways, couldn't it? Yeah, but yeah, that's um, that's an incredible story and, and really heartbreaking. And that is the story of the girl in the box, the case of Colleen Stan. What do you have for us? Love it, thanks, Chloe. <laughs> Midnight at a swanky hotel. I worked night audit at this semi swanky hotel next to the airport. One night, I get a call from a lady in 204. She says there was arguing, loud banging and crying out of, coming out of 206. Check the computer. No one has checked into that room due to maintenance issues. Called my supervisor to see what to do. She tells me to call on-site security and follow them up with a key. But I decide to be the bigger man and go up anyways. As we get off the elevator, we can hear the crying. It's loud. My heart starts racing as we near the door, so I hand the key to the security guard. The next five minutes happen, seem to happen in slow motion. He opens the door and immediately flicks on the light. Keep in mind, 206 was on the second floor, only door in was by me, and this was at 3 a.m. and there was no one around. As we enter the room, the shower is on, steam is coming from under the door. There is only one lamp on in the room, it's super cold, and there is a lady in a red lacy bra, black panties with super red hair curled up, crying in the bed. She was facing away from us. As Frank approached her, he asked if everything was okay. She sort of stopped crying and rolled over. When she did, a wave of horror came over me. She was super pale, 
covered in blood and was just staring behind us. That's when we realised the shower had stopped and the door was open. There was a man about six foot five standing in the doorway. As we turned around, cops tased him and arrested him. Turns out he was a rapist who hides in hotel rooms, kidnaps women who stay there and cuts them open. To this day, I will never go to a hotel again. What? This is a true story? But no, I, wanted, I, I, I remember listening to that story. It gave me shivers when I first heard it. And I thought, I know this story when Chloe said it. It's, it's still very scary. It's a scary story, though. Such a Ew. scary, scary story. Can you imagine? Oh, my goodness. I know, being in a hotel and... and, and oh, oh. What? So, keeping him in the countdown, this is number three of the most haunted places in the UK, apparently. And this is a Manning Tree in Essex. So, modern witches might want to steer clear of the Essex town of Manning Tree. It's where the self-professed witch finder, General Matthew Hopkins, lived in the 1600s. And his efforts resulted in the death of, a hundred, of hundreds of women in East Anglia witch trials. Um... Sightings of him have been happening during full moons in the neighbouring village of Misterly, by a pond where he infamously drowned so many fam- uh, so many innocent people. And there's also um, a pub called the Red Lion in Manningtree, and they think that it's haunted because um, he used to live there as well. Uh, the manager of the pub told. Uh, this reporter, she's not keen on being in the pub and alone at night. She feels like she's being watched and she's said to have a few odd or unexplainable happenings in the That's pub. That's the landlady of the Red Lion? Yeah. Wow. Do you know what, though? There's a lot of stories in Essex. There's a place called Hangman's Hill and that might come up. Oh, you've got Bordy Rectory as well. Bordy Rectory, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but they, yeah. they hung a lot of witches in, um, in uh, Hangman's Hill. And yeah. there's a section in Hangman's Hill where you drive down this steep, quite steep hill. But when you put the car in neutral... Oh, you recorded it, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, you drive, yeah, the I car goes that. back up the hill. And yeah. legend, urban legend has it that it's the hangman that is throwing the noose around your car, or around you and pulling you oh, back up the hill. But honestly, it works. It really works. And, and we've done it now twice, me and my family. And we just, you're looking down the hill. So you, you just expect nothing else but to roll forward. But you just yeah. start rolling back up the hill. It's insane. And me and my family, Tara and Ollie and Ava, we've done it twice now. We've gone over there because we've got friends. Whenever we visit friends there um, in that area, we go to Hangman's Hill. And it is just, it's such a spooky place, man. It's like so scary. It's brilliant. Like, no. You've got to check it out. Are you... Um, you're, are you near there, Chloe? Southampton is nowhere near Essex. Nowhere near Essex. All right. Do you think you're going to have a geography teacher? No. <laughs> how would I know? I don't he, know doesn't, he doesn't know unless it's in London. <laughs> right then. He's so, in the other uh, side of the country to us. <laughs> well, it's you that moved out of Watford, isn't it? Yeah, but I'm still on the same side. Who are you playing today? <laughs> what? Who are you playing today? I don't know. Oh, good Watford fan you are, aren't you? Well, we drew to bloody Millwall in the week. I was peeved off because we were second and, like, we could close the gap with top and, no, we're going to draw with Millwall. There were some shocking um, shocking results during the week. Man United losing to, to um, Sheffield United 2-1. Uh, I know. I watched oh, that. God. We're not playing today. You're not playing today. 
Right, then we're going to go to a little break and uh, we're going to be back with the five star bar. <laughs> This was when I was fresh out of high school and my first job. I worked as a machine operator for a factory doing graveyard shift. It was only me on the floor and the supervisor in the office. It was always a two-man shift. Sometimes he comes out to help, help bring me stock materials from the back storage. The back storage was haunted, or so I was told by the previous shift worker that I replaced. I'm not superstitious and was sceptical about it. For the first week, nothing unnatural happened and it was reinforcing my scepticism. However, as weeks go by, I started to notice that the machines closest to the storage room entrance were turned on by itself randomly. Also, started to hear people talking in the back storage and seem like they're making noises doing some restocking. But when I go there, the lights are off and it's dead quiet. Then this one time, my supervisor just finished helping me and said he'll be in the office if I need him. About 20 minutes passed when a big crashing noise from the back storage scared the crap out of me. I called him to make sure that it's not him either pranking me or crashing the forklift in the back. He came out from the office and was asking me what the hell happened. I then freaked out and we both decided to check it out. Once again, the back storage light is off and eerily quiet. We turned on the light and we saw barrels toppled over and a broken crate with stock materials all over the ground. These crates are on a shelf about five feet off the ground and the barrels are full. We cleaned it up, he used the forklift to put the replacement crate with the materials on it back up the, on the shelf and I rolled and repositioned three toppled barrels back to the corner by the entrance. By the time we were done it was lunch break, he went out to get food and I was alone operating the machines again in this big factory the size of two football fields. I wasn't troubled or scared knowing he would be back in half an hour but I ended up shutting down the machines and waited for him outside. When he was back he was surprised and I told him to go by my station and tell me what he sees. Yep, there's one of the barrels that I propped up on its side by the machine I was at. I told him that I didn't hear the barrel fall like earlier or even the sound of a full barrel rolling and stopping by my side. Standing in front of the barrel gives you a good view of the dark entrance to the storage. It was also then that I heard a faint creepy female voice coming from there, which is why I was waiting for him outside. We ended up closing the factory for the remainder of the night and explained the situation to the manager the next day. Manager thought I made this up and did it so I can leave early. The security camera, however, verified that the barrel just rolled out by itself from the dark storage area and stopped where I was, and you see me coming into view to check where this barrel came from and hurriedly back in, backtracking to turn off the machines. This prompted management to abolish graveyard shift, and I eventually quit that job after a year in night shift. We're oh, Monday. Brandon. Bring them on, bring the ladies on. Where are they? I've also got some fun facts about before I go to sleep. Oh, fantastic. You are just, you're worth your weight in gold, Zoe. You know that. You I just really love are. movies. I really, I used to work in the movies and I wish I was back there, I tell you. What, in a, in a cinema? No, I worked for a movie company. We had um, Sigourney Weaver's um, agent screaming at us down the phone to pay Sigourney Weaver or she she was about to go on this morning and she was about to slag us off on live on air if we hadn't paid her in time. Oh what? Had all the you don't mess calls. with Sigourney Weaver do you? Have you seen her no. in Alien? <laughs> Thinking it. Look who's joined us. Hello Kate. Hello Donna. Hello. Hello. No, I've come up with a new jingle all right just before the five star bar. Here we go. Oh. All the single ladies. All the single ladies. All the single ladies. All the single ladies. Uh 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 uh. 
<clears throat> I think that may be copyrighted. <laughs> what you need say? to get out more, Stu. You seriously <laughs> need to get out more. <laughs> you've, um, you've had a haircut, uh, Donna, have you? No, it's just clean. <laughs> oh, you look, <laughs> you look different today. You look different. Uh, I did cut my own fringe, but... Oh, well, see, I told you, you've had, you look different. That. I never noticed, I never... I never um, miss anything. I, I notice everything on people, but I've noticed that you have had something cut. See? <laughs> yeah, I'm on it. the ball, isn't I? Yeah, I'm lovely Kate, Everly, how are you, my lovely Kate? Hi, I'm all right. Good, good. Um, it's a pleasure to see you, hun. Yes, you too. So um, we're at the Five Star Bar, and I think we're going to go to the lovely Kate Everly first. What have you got for us this week, lovely Kate? It's not a five star, it's a four star. Okay, I hope it's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> and it's um, Smoke Queen by um, Thomas Enger and another guy whose name I can't pronounce. Um, oh, he's, a... he signed with, Booker, he signed with um, Orenda Books, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I've heard of him, yeah. Two of them, they write together. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's the second in the series, so I think really you need to first one first yeah there's bits in this one that won't make sense if you haven't read the first one right right yeah and but, so they follow on to each other yeah it's really but it's really complex it's really complex christine like there's two, two different stories that are going on at the same time and yeah. at the beginning it's difficult to work out how they're connected to each other but then it all comes together like as you go along and as you go along you kind of like ah so that's how that fits into that and that's how that works yeah 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 gotcha <laughs> well oh superb and that is that out of the, now kate i am not sure my blog store talk is my blog tour stop i'm sorry i can't speak. oh you're on the blog tour is, a bit next oh. week okay yeah 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 superb um sometime in February. Awesome. And you're giving that one four stars, Kate? Yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. No problem at all. Thank you so much. And we're over with the lovely Donna Morfit all the way in sunny Luton. How are you, Donna? Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Dunstable, actually. Sorry, Dunstable. <laughs> Did you move last week? I, I, well. always thought, I always thought you was Luton. No. I'm on the edge, but I'm still in Dunstable. Well, yes, I know you're bloody on the edge, all right? I see enough of <laughs> so your posts. I. I see enough of your posts on the ATM. <laughs> Honestly, your posts are wicked, man. You make me laugh all the time. Yeah, so what actually, you... saying that you should get out more, I think I should as well. <laughs> you should be studying. No, no, Donna, what you need to do is stop procrastinating. Get I don't have anything to do at the minute. I done my lecture yesterday. I was good. Oh, wicked. <laughs> All about um, drugs. Oh, I can really? tell you so much about drugs now already after one lecture. Oh, wow. <laughs> and apparently you had a, a conversation during the week about VEET. VEET for men. Yes. <laughs> it was, uh, who was that with? Oh, uh, Morgan Green. Yeah. <laughs> I've never laughed so much. Oh, and I've learned more than I could ever possibly wish to know about certain <laughs> things. Excellent. Uh, so what have you got for us this week, Donna, lovely? I have Song of the Psychopath by Mark Tilbury. Oh, yes, lovely. That's quite that's um, a new one, isn't it? Has that just come out? Am I right? It's out, out on recently? Thursday. This Thursday coming? 
yeah, 4th of February. So tell us about that book. So Tommy is found um, on a deserted road. Uh, he's injured, badly injured. He's got a fractured skull, broken bones, taken to hospital. He, um, his family are there. He doesn't recognise them. Um, and he's been missing for a year. No idea where he's been. His family don't know where he's been, obviously. The police are trying to find out. And he just doesn't remember. He doesn't even recognise his family. So it's following him as he recovers and he goes home. So you sort of got the aspect of where he's recovering from a, a serious brain injury um, and he doesn't remember anyone. But then he has these fugue states where he remembers where he's been. Um, and um, in them, he screams um, about a woman called Bella and he doesn't know who she is or what she looks like. He just knows that he's terrified of her. Um, and he also can attack people in these states hmm. um, or try and climb out of a window and stuff. But then obviously the further through the book it goes, then you realise what's happened to him and it's pretty horrendous. Yeah. But it's amazing, as all Mark's books are. Brilliant. Love it. Thank you so much for that, Donna. <laughs> Go to um, Zoe O'Farrell. Whatcha, Zoe? Whatcha? How you doing? Um, I'm doing all right. What have you, you got for us this week? Yeah, I'm all right. Hanging in there, you know, as usual. Good, good, good. Um, I think mine will come to no surprise what my book is because I posted it in the uh, ATM club the other night. But mine is called Shadow of a Doubt by Michelle Davis. Okie dokie. What's that about? It is about a girl that is coming home. It's about um, 330 pages. <laughs> Sorry. For those who can't well, see you're it, you're getting worse, Stu. You're actually getting worse. <laughs> I, think yeah, the, I think you saw the coffee I'm drinking. I you... think it's the old age setting in. <laughs> I bet. Whatever. Watch yourself, you. I can mute you. No, I can't actually. I, 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 I read a great book during the week called uh, All About Glue. I couldn't put it down. Can we You're get the back only one laughing. Right, come on, let's go. What's the book about? Tell us. Oh, I'm trying to tell Dilly you. Dilly dallying, Jesus. <laughs> Shut up your face. I shut up in your face. Oh, I smile at you. Hey, why are you looking so sad? It's and you nice moan at us about the editing. Oh, no. And he says we're the ones that make it go into mayhem. <laughs> Jesus. Jesus. Right. Anyway, this book. <laughs> so it's time now. Uh, so this young lady, when she was, I think it was nine, she was accused of killing her little boy. Uh, her little brother. See, now that you get me distracted. Um, and can't so, get the staff, can you? Can't get the staff. Right, let's start again. This young lady. I'm leaving in, by the way. Her. Yeah, you, you know he's not going to edit that out. No, it's fine. Did you I, actually I read imagine. the book, Zoe? Yes! It's like one of my top books of the year. Just... It's only January. Exactly. I've only I've read 13. Is that any good? No, I've read 13 books, you don't Oh, sorry, baby. But yeah, 13 <laughs> is a good book. <laughs> that is a good book, actually, 13. Anyway, yeah, so this girl, she, when she was nine, she was adamant that her house was haunted by a ghost called Limey Stan. And so she, uh, one night, decided that she wanted to capture this ghost. So she wakes her little brother up, and they're hiding behind, um, like, floor-to-length, curtains in the front room 
and um, they then have like a fit of giggles and then the next thing they know they could hear Limey Stan coming and everything happens really quickly um, the the girl runs up the stairs hides in the bathroom screaming the house down and um, her little brother has died so then she um, so then it, it sort of progresses to present day and basically um, Part one is about her mum has just died and um, much to the disgust of the whole family, the mum has left her the house where, because um, the mum never moved out of the house when the little boy died. Um, and so to the disgust of the family, everybody that's still in the area, she comes home back to the house because she wants to try and find out who Limey Stan is. She got put into foster care by her mum. So she's not seen her mum since she was nine, ten. And it, I mean, I guess the twist, but then the author threw in a couple of other really, like, really good twists in the book. Um, and it, when you get to what actually happened that night, it's just, oh, it just breaks you. Like, the, the decisions that were made and it's quite chilling. You've got, like, the is ghost story. It's a ghost story. story. It's a ghost story. It's a ghost story, but with a twist. Yeah. Um, so there are a few moments where she comes back to the house and um, she's in the bathroom. She comes out of the shower and there's, um, you know, what you see in the horror film. So the, the, the glass is all misted up. The mirror's misted up. And on the mirror, it says, you know, Limey Stan is back. And wow. so she's the only person in the house. There's another bit where she, no one goes into her little brother's room. Like it's been left as a shrine since he's died. And when she goes into her bedroom, his toys are all laid out on her bed and so she runs out the bedroom screaming runs down the road whatnot and then she goes back to her room later on and all the toys are gone and they're back in the exact same place that they were so I found it it quite fascinating because part of you thinks well is there a ghost or is it her is she going a bit crazy is she actually crazy did she kill her brother did she do this did she do that and so i found you quite you question your, your own sanity when you're reading this and um i was messaging the author when i was reading it because i i've had a stonk in migraine all week but it was i was like i'll read one chapter even though i knew i should be closing my eyes and sleeping and the next thing i knew i'd powered through and i was halfway through the book and wow. it was just one that did not want you to I didn't want to put it down. I I would have happily stayed up if it weren't for the fact that I was in a lot of pain. But I would have happily stayed up and finished that book in one go because it just hooked me. Yeah, sounds fantastic. But, yeah. I'm gonna have to check that out. Thank it's, you so it, much for that, Zoe. No worries. Super duper. So, um, Donna Morfit, where can we learn more about your blog, hun? It is on Donna's interviews, reviews, and giveaways on Facebook and Donna's book. Reviews and interviews on Instagram. I mean, I'm, I'm right in saying that you've hit almost a thousand members now on your on your group. Um, yeah, I'm like twenty odd away. Wow! Massive congratulations! Massive congratulations! Superb, lovely. Thank That's brilliant. And Kate, Everly, where can we learn more about your blog, lovely? It's portable magic. I'm <laughs> Fantastic! Thank you so much for joining us, Kate. And Chloe, where can we learn about your blog, hun? Uh, at Chloe's Reading Room on Facebook and Instagram. Beautiful. And Zoe? I'm on zulusbookdiary.co.uk and I'm on Twitter at Zulu2008. Wonderful. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us and um, we'll see you next Saturday, God willing. Yes.
Thank you so much. We need to do what Chloe said last week. We all have to do a countdown. Three, two, one. Bye. 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 <laughs> oh, love it. Love it. Welcome back. We're here with Tony Parsons, the only child of working class parents who grew up above a shop in Essex before moving to a council estate. His father was a former Royal Navy commander who won the Distinguished Service Medal in World War II and then worked as a lorry driver and greengrocer on the turn to civilian life. His mother was a school dinner lady. Tony had his first job at Gordon's Gin Distillery before publishing his first novel, The Kids, and earning £700. He then submitted to NME and landed a staff writer job which brought him into contact with The Clash, Sex Pistols, Blondie and others. When he left journalism, he embedded with the Vice Squad at 27 Seville Row, which became the roots of the DC Max Wolf series. Since then, his books have been translated into more than 40 languages. His novel Man and Boy is based on his experience of being a single father to his young boy after his first marriage ended. He talks eloquently about Magil's fr mm. fragility. Fantastic. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure. So um, I understand from you, I mean, you've got an incredible bio and, and you're, you're known worldwide. Um, so your very first job was Gordon's Gin Distillery. And then I think you, you, you published a book, The Kids. Yeah, I, 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 was, um, I left school when I was 16 just because yeah. um, I felt that I should experience the world. And I didn't really, I mean, in a way I experienced the world, but, I, you know, I was just in a in a series of very low paid, low skilled jobs and um, mostly in this gin factory, um, yeah. working a 12 hour night shift. And so in a way, you know, you are experiencing life. You're not experiencing life as you, as you want to experience it, you know, having great experiences and, you know, meeting people and, and all that. But um, it, it kind of toughens you up. You know, you realize how hard most people have to work just to, just to earn a living. And yeah. the great thing about working in the, the, gin factory was it was 12 hour shift so I had a lot of time on my hands you know my, my colleagues would go to sleep and I would work on my book and it wasn't a very good book I mean it was really that's not false modesty it was quite a you know the kind of thing that young people that never really experienced life right you know I mean it didn't there wasn't any great depth to it but it did get published and um it came out and uh, it came out when I was 21 and um and I always had the the idea and the fantasy that once you publish, if you publish a novel, then you could be, then you could write for the next 50 years. Yeah. You know, I didn't really understand, you know, the economics of it. I didn't understand how much money you made from a book. I had no, I had no idea about absolutely anything. Yeah. Um, but I always thought if you got a book published and you could be a writer, you know, and, um, and, and funny enough, that's the way it turned out because the, the book got me my job on the NMA, got me a job working for the, uh, working for the music press. Yeah. And, um, and they didn't actually read the book, but they didn't need to. You know, the fact that I was, you know, everybody else was sending in their little typewritten reviews and their little biro scribbles. And I, I had a published book. It was kind of impressive because it's, you know, publishing a book is largely an act of will. You know, it's an act of will. It's kind of putting in the hours to get it done, trying to get it good if you possibly can. But then just, especially when you come from, you know, outside of the system and yeah. you don't know that, you know, you've got to get an agent. So, you know, you learn, you've got to get an agent and the agent's got to find you a publisher. Um, and it took years, you know, it really took years. I mean, I was a teenager when I started and it, and it seemed to take, you know, it seemed to take forever, but I was only 21 when it came out and that got me my job on the NMA. So that was, um, 
it kind of it kind of does work it does work if you get a book published it's it's difficult for the world to say you're not really a writer this is just some fantasy you've got you know yeah. if you actually get a book published you kind of you kind of you, you, you join the club it's proof isn't it it's proof that, that you're out there i mean it would be, be preferable if it had been good or great that would have been preferable <laughs> but instead it wasn't but um yeah it was the best i could manage at the time yeah. it was still published though that's all that matters yeah, it kind of be kind of it was a huge, you know, it's a huge barren round because that's that's the thing getting getting through the door, getting through the first door. I think in any profession is the toughest thing, you know, and you just feel so completely outside. Especially if you know, I mean, I grew up in quite a a poor background. I didn't have contact. I didn't know anybody that that was doing what I did. You know, I didn't know. I didn't even know anybody that had a career. Right? I knew people that had jobs, and yeah. um, people had jobs where I came from. You know, so it was, um, yeah. But yeah, it was a start. And you, you actually hung out with the likes of the Sex Pistols, Blondie. Yeah, it was kind of that was kind of my job really for a that few years. Amazing. It was like at, at the at the height of uh, the class, sex, yeah. drugs, and rock and roll. I was, um, yeah, I was there. I was in the front line, and it was very. I mean, celebrity was different there. You know, celebrity wasn't as patrolled and controlled as it became. You know, yeah. I mean, I met Debbie Harry very, very early on, you know, became quite friendly with her. And you just feel that you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to hang out with someone like that now, you know, that there'd be some PR system around to kind of protect them. And they'd be, you know, they'd be paranoid about, um, you know, what you might write, but there was a sense of, um, there was a sense that, you know, we were, I think it's probably like a hangover from the sixties, you know, although it was long after then, it was probably like a, a sense that we were all part of the same tribe. You know, there was a tribal thing. We could trust each other. Um, so it was, um, it was a great time. And it was an exciting time. It was an exciting time for, for music. There was just like, you know, just like every night for three years. I saw great music every night, just every wow. night, you know, and just like, you know, watching Prince in America and, you know, David Bowie in Newcastle. It was just a great time. And you know, if you, if you wow. loved music, you know, if you loved music as I did, then it was, and I, I mean, my regret is that, you know, I didn't have any training as a journalist. I was kind of learning on the job. So it was, um, yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, I was writing, writing great stuff for the ages. And although that, you know, there's a certain generation that looked, back on my time at the NME and remember me at the NME with a great fondness. It's not because the writing was any good. It's just because, you know, I was staying up all night with Iggy Pop. You know, that's what, that's what they, kind of, that was the exciting bit. That was the exciting wow. bit, you know, that was the exciting bit, yeah. But it's such a shame that the music venues, most of them have gone now. I mean, I, I grew up in Northwest London and our biggest music venue was, do you remember the Mean Fiddler, Vince Power? Mean Fiddler, yeah. There's a, yeah. Northwest London was a, was a great, you know, there's, there's the like- National in Gilburn. Yeah, Hope and Anchor on Upper Street. You know, I remember seeing the jam playing the Hope and Anchor and you know, Music Machine. Yeah, it's, um, what was your best yeah. gig? What was your what was your most my favorite gig? gig of all time was um, actually like after I left the NME, I, I saw um, Prince um, in Washington on wow. the Purple Rain tour right at the start of the right at the start of the Purple Rain tour, and he hadn't really crossed over. He hadn't really become a big. He was still kind of. Um, it was still like a funk act. He was still like that. The audience was mostly mostly black. It was a basketball stadium. There were about twelve thousand people there, so it wasn't a huge, you know, it wasn't a huge stadium event. And I think his film hadn't come out yet, and um, and he was just phenomenal. And I, I had a ticket. I had a, a girlfriend in New York who got tickets for him. We went we went down on the train, and um, 
kind of in the, in, in the front row or close to the front. I mean, close enough to watch him. Yeah, I remember a string broke on his guitar when he was playing Purple Rain. And I remember the look of impatience on his face. And he had the, you know, it was a time where he was wearing all these ruffles and silk things. And I thought it was like, um, I thought he was like Mozart, really. I thought he was like, I thought there was like a, a real genius to, to him. You know, the music yeah. just seemed to pour out of him, you know? So that was, um, that was a great experience. And it became, and it, as time went by, you know, and he became huge and you realize, well, you know, you're never going to see that act in that stadium again, because they're too big. You know, a lot of it is, a lot of it is catching these great acts early. You know, I mean, I saw yeah. Springsteen in New York, in the Palladium in New York. Um, first time I ever went to New York. And that was, that's kind of, you know, it's before Born to Run, before his big hits, before it became a stadium act. So you're watching someone like in a, in a venue for like two or 3,000 people. And really they weren't a bigger, stage in that but you're seeing it in that intimate so i always you know the smaller the venue was always better i thought of course yeah, yeah. Who, was your, awesome. who was your least favorite gig that you went to um oh good question i don't know i, I really of, hope it's no one i like <laughs> i don't know I, I i saw the sex pistols on jubilee day in 1977 and it was um there was lots of fighting you know there was a time when that like seventies and eighties period, it did descend into. Um, it became quite. I mean, it was always raucous, but it became more more than that. It became quite violent, and um, you know there was a, a lot of lot of punch ups again. I think that's what killed it off actually. And um, and I remember like there, there was a lot of fighting at this Sex Pistols gig. It was like on a boat, and it was broken up. And and when I look back now, when you ask me that question, I think you know the, the gigs where there were violence, where there was where the mm -hmm. You know, just that, because it was so, to see someone like Prince, you know, on, on Purple Rain Tour, see, to see Springsteen in New York, or, or, you know, Debbie Harris, to see Blondie in their pomp, it was so joyous, you know, it was yeah. such a euphoric, ecstatic yeah. experience, mm -hmm. that when that was, when that was marred by violence, and it happened quite a bit, when it became, became like foot, going to the football at the time, mm -hmm. um, yeah. that kind of, any of those, any of those gigs kind of put me, it just turned me off, really. Yeah, I, I remember going to see um, Nicky Flanagan actually last year in, in uh, Wembley Arena, and it was out of this world. I mean, I love Nicky Flanagan, and in the interval, it kicked off in the bar, and honestly, there must have been about fifty people fighting. It was like right. uh, Nicky no right. stuff like that just ruins it, doesn't it? It, it ruins does. like the whole yeah. atmosphere. We went to see Noel Gallagher when he did his solo gig. And it was a Friday night, but the problem was everyone was expecting Noel to be doing the Oasis stuff, and obviously he was doing his High Flying Birds tour. Yeah, so you've got a lot of people taking cocaine and all ready to be raucous and everything. So yeah. I saw Oasis, and that was the sort of crowd they um, brought. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously Noel was just so mellow, and they just didn't know what to do. And it just yeah, you're a bit frightened for your life at some points because it just actually now you now you mention now you mention that the Gallagher brothers. I did see um, I saw Oasis in Wembley Stadium. I guess yeah. guess that would have been like late nineties and that was pretty horrible because that was like eighty thousand eighty thousand drunks. And <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and they did uh, yeah, you do get those those bands that attract attract that a certain following, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. so how how did you get the idea of this this book, uh, Tony, your your husband your <clears> I was um, how did you get the idea of it? You know, any book starts with a hunch. It starts with a hunch, a couple of things rubbing up against each other. Yeah. And I um, I was watching 
during lockdown, I was watching all my old favorite, my favorite films. And I was watching Fatal Attraction. And I was oh, watching classic. Fatal Attraction with the director's commentary. And, um, and, I was, and I was watching it and thinking how interesting it would be if all the roles were reversed. You know, if it was Ann Archer that was having the affair and if it was Michael Douglas that was at home uh, with his mullet and Glenn Close was a man. Because I, I do feel that, you know, although of course women can be obsessive in love as we, as we know and can be stalkers, it's mostly men. Men are mostly mm. prone to the inability to let go to the inability to to acknowledge that now you're an ex-partner you're not a partner anymore yeah. you're an ex-partner you're done you know the world has moved mm. on and i do feel that um it's quite it's quite old-fashioned in that respect as, as much as i love it you know it's got the view you know of the woman that can't let go and in the real world in the 21st century and and probably always it's been a man so i just thought the idea I, you know, I could just see how you could update that story and you could update Fatal Attraction for now. And I, at the same time, I was reading Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, which I'd never read. And the thing that was crossing over the genres and was doing all these genres convincingly and was, um, so that, so it's really those two things rubbing up against each other. And then you start, you know, I mean, for the last six years, I've been writing a crime series and I like the idea of, I, I like the idea of that. I think there's some, something inherently dramatic about crime and that, having that at the heart of it. But at the same time, you know, books I've written in the past have been very successful, have been about families, been about relationships, about fathers and sons and husbands and wives. And I wanted to try and incorporate all the themes that I've worked on in the past in one, in one book, in a way that was convincing, you know, in a way that, that it doesn't feel forced, it feels natural. So, um, yeah. Love that, yeah. love that. We're going to go to a short break with some facts about Tony and we'll be back in a few minutes. Here's some facts about our guest, Tony Parsons. Tony Parsons' new book is called Your Neighbour's Wife. It comes out January the 7th, 2021 and it's published with Penguin. Tony is a best-selling novelist, but he's also an award-winning journalist. He used to work for NME and he hung out with the Sex Pistols and Blondie. His books have been published in over 40 languages and his multi-million best-selling novel Man and Boy won the Book of the Year prize in 2000. Most recently he created the Sunday Times best-selling Max Wolf crime series. Tony lives in London with his family and he has a dog called Stan. There's some facts about our guest Tony Parsons. Marries his beloved, a beautiful young woman who always wears a black velvet ribbon around her neck. On their wedding night, he asks why she never takes the ribbon off. If I do, you'll be sorry, she says, and goes to sleep. Night after night, he keeps asking, but she always gives him the same reply. He begins to go mad with curiosity. Finally, one night, while she's sleeping, he steals the scissors from her sewing box and cuts through the ribbon himself. The black ribbon falls away and her head rolls right off her neck and falls onto the floor of a sickening thud.
A young woman is driving home late one night when she notices a truck driving up directly behind her. No one else is on the road. She waits for the truck to pass her, but instead it stays directly behind her and it flashes its high beams. She becomes unsettled. No matter how fast she drives or which back road she heads down, the truck stays close behind her, flashing its high beams every few seconds. Terrified, she speeds home with the truck right on her tail and pulls into her driveway. She leaps out of her car and tries to run to her front door, but the truck driver gets out too and he's holding a gun. He points the gun in her direction and shoots. The woman screams, but the bullet wasn't for her. She turns to see the body of a man fall out of her back seat of the car, clutching a butcher's knife. The shaken truck driver explains that he notices the man in the back seat of her car and was trying to signal her. Every time the man raised his knife to stab her, he flashed his high beams. Welcome back. We're here with Tony Parsons. His new book is coming out shortly. And uh, we have a quick fire round here. So we have some questions that have been sent in to us. So, uh, Tony, the first one is, where do yeah. you get your ideas? Um, I get my ideas. I'm kind of, you, you have to have your radar constantly switched on. So you can't, you're constantly you know, trying to pick up this could work. This could possibly work as a story, you know? So you, your ideas come from everywhere, really. They come from, they come from personal experience. They come from, you know, watching and reading stuff and thinking I could put my own spin on this. I could take it. I could, I could, uh, I could turn this into something that's my own and, and say something in an original way or update it. So you're constantly on the lookout. You, you have to be, you can't, you can't find your ideas in one place. You have to constantly be on the look for things. And, and to be able to do that thing, as I did with, you know, Rebecca is a book that came out before World War II. Yeah. Fatal Attraction is a book that came out um, in, in the late 20th century. And yet the way I just happened to be reading one while I was watching the other, and they kind of rubbed up against each other mm. and created a spark for me that didn't exist before. You know, yeah, and so you have to be on. You have to constantly be on the lookout for inspiration. Yeah, is that your favourite film? Would you say Fatal Attraction? Uh, I, I, oh, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a. There's something perfect about it. There's yes. something perfect about it. Yeah, you know, I mean, they made a film with Rebecca, which won Best Picture, um, and I'm not keen on that because it's just not as good as the book. It's softer than the book. Mm. They kind of watered it down. Even even Alfred Hitchcock watered it down a bit. Mm. Um, so yeah, I uh, it's certainly one of my favourite. But I, you know, it's like a song. I've got a thousand favourite songs, you know? Yeah, and it'd yeah, be different every day, every day of the year. Yeah. My favourite film of all time is uh, Roadhouse. I don't know if you remember Patrick Swayze when he's about Patrick, to... the, the late great <laughs> Patrick. Oh, the late great. Roadhouse is a good one. Yeah. Late great, yeah. Yeah, he was amazing. He's, I mean, that film just had everything. I've seen it probably about 150 times. Wow, it's, wow. Yeah, it's incredible. Wow. I'm a, bit, I'm a bit like that with Les Miserables. I've seen like Les Miserables, not 150 times, but maybe a dozen times. Wow. Maybe a dozen times, yeah, since, because I saw it when it came out, and I always um, go back and, always go back and ready to sing along and weep, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what does your writing process look like? Are you a planner or are you a pantser? The, uh, there's a theory that every writer is either an architect or a gardener. And a, an architect has all the plans laid out before they begin. You know, they have all the plans out. They know they meticulously work it out. And the gardener improvises because it takes, takes a year to write up any book. Takes it, it takes a, year, a good year out of your life. 
so you've got the architects that plan everything and you get the gardeners that kind of change things as they go along and prune and cut and and actually what i found what works best is being both that mm. can kind of meticulously plan it out and then improvise like hell through the process you know just so you've always got that you've always got that structure you've always got that template which is very reassuring so you're never lost it's like you've always got this map of where you're going um but at the same time you're open to ideas and thinking you know actually this can be changed i find that i'm an only child and i i find i don't write about siblings very well i find i don't write about brothers i don't i, I never really convince myself when i'm writing about brothers and sisters and so often when I'm going through a book and there's siblings in it, I think actually this works better to narrow it down. This works better to lose. So, you know, you, you're on the lookout for that. You're constantly on the lookout. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to be honest. And uh, the reason why a lot of new writers or young writers or big amateur writers give up is because they despair. And you got to understand that despair is part of the job. Despair comes with the job. And if you're despairing, it's just because you you got to put in another, put in another 50 hours and then you, you probably, it's almost certainly it's going to be better. You won't yeah. feel as bad and you won't feel as despairing, you know? Um, so yeah, so I, I do plan everything and, and know where I'm going, but at the same time, you know, change it within. And then, you know, the part, the writing process is such that you, you know, you hand it in when you've got it as good as you can. And then your editor tells you how to make it better. You know, so it's a, you know, it's um, a constant, you know, there's a theory that, all writing is rewriting and there's something in that and the fun bit is that initial spark that initial spark that initial thinking of you know what if there's this wife and she does this um and then this happens you know so that's the initial spark but then after that it's kind of polishing and honing and trying to get yeah. better yeah. so do you find like when you have like siblings and things do you find that you get kind of like writer's block or do you just go back and change what you've done to get yourself back on to the track that you were originally on it's not writer's block so much as I just don't, it's not as good as I think it should be. It's just not as convincing as I, as I think it should be. It just doesn't ring true to me. And you have to be, you have to, I think you, the, the thing that you, if you're going to have a 50 year career, you've got to be honest with yourself and you've got you to say, this is not working. Yeah. Try something else, try something else. Um, so it's never writer's block because you, you know, you can, because you, you can't, in a way you kind of accept that, you know, you're going to hit stumbling blocks. You, it's, you know that it's impossible to not feel, you know, a certain, a certain le level of dissatisfaction, but you can't call it, because the writer's block is a bit of a cop-out to me. It's like saying, oh, I just can't, you know, I can't, the, the wheels have fallen off the wagon, I can't do it anymore. And yeah. actually, you can, you can try something else. You can try something else, put some new yeah. wheels on. We had, I mean, that's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant advice. We had the same, the same question actually um, with um, Linwood Barkley. Uh, he's obviously a huge author in America and Canada. And he said exactly the same thing. He doesn't believe in writer's block at all. I mean, yeah. it's like any job, you know, you go, he was explaining that you go in, you've got to work. You, whatever you're doing, if you're serving food or if you're like, you know, in a big office and you've got to um, plan the day for people, you can't just say, oh, no, I don't want to do it. Or, I, I can't do it anymore or whatever. Or, you know, the writer's block, he believes that the writer's block is a complete myth, which is, there's a lot of truth to it. I mean, exactly what you say, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, great yeah. Yeah. Totally. it's not always going to be great and it's not always going to be easy, you know, and yeah. that's true of any job. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Louise Jensen says exactly the same thing. She said it's not writer's block, it just means you've gone off the path that you were supposed to be on to go back and change something and you'll find your way again. 
do you have a schedule when you're writing or do you like on your day do you do how many hours you're going to do a day or do you do word count a day or well the word count is is quite a useful technique because um it's a marathon you know writing a book is a marathon and and the good thing about a word count and some writers get completely obsessive with it is um you know that you are covering the ground you know you are covering the ground and you can't you know if you're only writing uh a hundred words a day you never it's never going to be finished it's never going to be done so a thousand words a day is not a bad it's not a bad target for most people what i do these days is i set myself a target i just this is what i've got to do this is what i've got to do on today's shift uh, so i start as early as i can and uh you know there's there's usually some other demand on my day whether it's it was walking it's usually walking the dog used to be uh driving my daughter to school but now she's at she just started university so that's one thing I don't have to do. So I start as early as I can because I think the earlier you can start, the less the world intrudes upon you. And uh, the, just the more you, it's not really about the time I, I've found, but the focus, you just have to be completely, totally focused. And that, um, and spending six hours on something and being distracted is not as good as spending 30 minutes on something and being totally focused on it. So what I do these days, I give myself a job. Your job today is to, draft the next chapter do a draft the next chapter or do a polish of the last chapter um or, or write a scene that you, an extra scene yesterday i wrote an extra scene that was needed a scene in a hospital that absolutely needed to be there and wasn't in the first draft that i did and then when i've done that you can't you know you can't be too hard on yourself can't beat yourself up so i do that and then i knock off and it doesn't matter if it's 11 o'clock in the morning you know it's fine or you know just uh, do your job and then knock off and don't don't beat yourself up don't be too hard on yourself uh you know put in a good day shift and uh and then get ready to do it again the next day you know it, it, uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway said always leave some water in the well and that's not bad advice it means you know there's so there's something there for the next day so you're not ah oh, god you know I'm gonna lay down for a week now you don't feel like that you know you've got to be ready to go back and yeah, get stuck in again Great advice, great advice. So do you edit as you go then, or do you? Yeah, I, I got a system now, whereas I try to get it down, try to get a first draft down, and then I wouldn't show it to anybody else without doing at least one more pass. So I go back to, right back to the start and think, you know, this could be changed. And there's usually a lot that can be changed. So I do. So by the time anyone sees it, by the time my editor sees it, I've done two or three, two or three drafts. You know, I've kind of got it as good as I can get it. Um, and you are editing, you are editing as you go, but, you, but at the same time, you've got to keep, I think in anything, momentum is really important. You've got to keep, you know, you've got to have that, just to keep going. You've got to keep going, not mindlessly, but you've got to get, to get through it. You've got, to, you've got to have a certain momentum. And um, so I try not to lose that momentum. And I think that the, you know, if you, and then if you do it for a long time, you become quite obsessed with the way other people do it. And, you know, like, a lot of writers like Stephen King, Woody Allen, with his films, they want to get something down, get something down. If you get the whole thing down, then you can work on it. And you yeah, can endlessly, endlessly uh, hone it, polish it and improve it. But just having something down, down like, you know, I think Stephen King calls it, you know, downloading the book in your head, you know, just getting it down. It's not perfect, but it doesn't need to be. It's just, you know, it's like part of the process. Are you a fan mm. of Stephen King, Tony? I am a fan of Stephen King. I'm, I, I do prefer the earlier stuff. I think some writers get so big, like Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, that they're too big to edit. 
you know, that, that there's nobody at their publishing house that says, you know, uh, Stephen or JK, Joanne, this is really terrific, but it'd be really better if you lost 400 pages, you know? You can't say that, you know, and you can't say, and because you can't say that, you know, someone like me, a fan, a fan from way back, pick up, pick up, picks up the books and think, oh, this is a bit baggier than, and I've done it with a few Stephen King novels in recent years, which is really disappointing actually, but you know, you pick it up and think this is not as tight as Carrie, you know, this is not as tight as Salem's Lot. And, um, and I, and I do think it is, you know, I'm not big enough for people to be afraid of telling me that it's rubbish. You know, I'm kind of in a very fortunate position that I'm not, I don't, I'm not in the position where they can say, um, you know, you don't need to edit this. You know, there's, they, I've got some very good people, very experienced editors that, are, that will tell me how to make it better. And you know, eighty, ninety percent of what they say is 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 good advice. And you just, as a writer, you just have to reserve that little bit where you don't um, don't take that bit of advice where you think doesn't work. Tony, what was the last book that made you cry? Um, I'm not a big uh, I'm not a big I'm not a big weeper of books. I think it was probably my own book, Man and Boy, which I picked <laughs> up and. Uh, just stunned at the emotional power of it you know I think I was really I'm, I'm sometimes I go back to my old books if I've written about something before as I say I've just written a hospital scene and uh and there's a hospital scene in Man and Boy where where the, the protagonist's father is dying of lung cancer and I think that was the last time I cheered up in all honesty was was my own book because you know it's very much very personal to me it's but you know it's based on my own dad in hospital and I'm just and I'm just you know, was interested in well, what you know the the boredom that people feel in hospitals. You know, where you kind of you go to hospital and then you sit at someone's bed and then you feel there's nothing for you to do or there's nothing that you can do to improve. And then that you know, and you're going off to buy undrinkable coffee and there's you know people with having having cigarettes standing outside with their oxygen tank in their pajamas and they're you know just trying to get the feel of it. And I picked it up and I, and and it is one of the powerful, you know, crying at your own book does sound very self-indulgent, but it's, it's, you know, it's very personal and, and, um, you know, it's kind of, and it comes from a real, a real spot. It comes from somewhere real. Yeah. So that, I guess that would be it. Yeah. Love that. That's a, that's a wonderful answer. Thank you for sharing that with us. Do you ever listen to any music when you're writing? I, you know, I, I tend to not, um, listen to music because what I've found is if I'm focused, as I should be focused, if I'm that lost in the story, then I don't hear it. Now, yeah. not, and it doesn't distract me. I just don't, simply don't hear it. So, you know, I could have music on and it, and it, and it would just, you know, just not register. And that's the way it should be. So, um, yeah, I just think that I, I increasingly think that it's not time that you need, but focus, you know, you just need to be completely lost. You know, you just need to be completely, I need to step through that, door at the back of the wardrobe and into Narnia and it's about how long you can stay in Narnia you know before you awake from the dream and uh, <laughs> I kind of tend not, tend not to I do I, I love music and I do listen to music and I um I listen to a lot of music but it tends to be recreational yeah do you, do you tend to snack while you're writing no no because I, I want to I want to 
stay, stay slim and gorgeous, yeah. <laughs> which you are, which you are, of course. <laughs> I, uh, no, I don't snack. I'm not a big snacker, no. no. And uh, my dog wouldn't let me. My dog is, uh, my dog is here and with me now and he wouldn't tolerate me. Uh, I think you can see him, he's kind of down, no, he's down on the floor, I won't disturb him. But he's, uh, yeah, he wouldn't tolerate snacking, he'd want to join in, so, yeah. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so, um, Tony, your neighbour's wife comes out, am I right in saying, 7th of January, yep. 2021. Yeah, 7th of January. It looks like an absolute cracker. I know that um, Chloe's almost finished it and she's loving it. Um, it looks like such a, uh, it's going to be such a smash hit. Where can people buy it from? Um, you can buy it from all good bookstores, even a few bad bookstores. You can buy it, <laughs> you can buy it all over. You get it, on, get it on hardback or Kindle and Amazon. And supermarkets have uh, 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 been great for writers. You know, supermarkets have stayed mm. open. Unlike the bookstores, supermarkets have stayed open. And you can get it, you can get it in supermarkets. Yeah, excellent. I, I reckon it's going to be my five-star bar this week. Oh, well, we, we, have a, we have a five-star bar where a load of wonderful bloggers come on and we discuss like the, uh, the latest five-star reads. So that's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Well, Tony, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And um, it's, it's just been a complete pleasure to talk to you. And Your Neighbour's Wife comes out the 7th of January 2021. It's published with Penguin, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, go buy it. I'm sure it's going to be absolutely amazing. Thank you. Buy it. Oh, Thank you for having me. Uh, lovely to meet you. You too. Lovely Tony. to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. See you Bye. again. Cheers. So Bye. Yeah. Welcome back to the weird and wacky stories of the week. What do you have for us, Chloe? Um, a Tesco was left covered in smashed eggs after a fight broke out between customers over a two-minute silence. While the rest of the supermarket in Middlesbrough came to a standstill, one woman continued shopping and talking. She was told to shush while other customers observed the silence in honour of fallen service men and women. However, she took umbrage to this. A witness said we were all stood still observing the two minute silence when we heard lots of screaming and shouting. Everyone was looking at each other. We were like, what's going on? I heard someone shout, you've disrespected my mother. She added that there were smashed eggs all over the floor of the Tesco Extra. The police spokesman said following a verbal altercation reportedly involving a man and woman and another two women, a man allegedly assaulted the two women with eggs. What? Right, woman shares creepy messages from man who catfished her on a terrible date. The woman showed how her date sent a stream of cruel messages after she left early and people on TikTok were left open-mouthed at the video. The murky world of online dating is full of terrible tales, ghosting, abusive messages, unsolicited sexual content, Rubbish chat and general unwelcome acts are all part of the modern day dating world. One of them is catfishing. I've never heard of catfishing. This is where some, no, this is where someone tricks you into thinking they are someone else. Oh, right. How have you never heard of catfishing? Oh, I've never heard of that. Uh, yeah, so there was a whole there was a whole TV program yeah. on MTV called Catfish. Oh, yes, yes, I remember it now. Yeah, 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 all right, okay. Yeah, yeah, I remember, yeah, that whole series. It was, it was, yeah, brilliant. This I used to where, wet myself at then. Yeah. This is where someone tricks you into thinking they are someone else or looks different from what they actually really look like. It's an unpleasant practice and leaves you thinking, what did that person expect to happen when you turn up and, and they look totally different to what you expect? On TikTok, the woman explained that she met the 38-year-old man on Bumble 
and they arranged to meet at a bar in Las Vegas. But after she arrived, she was disappointed to see that he did not look like his photographs. She said, we swiped on each other and I was attracted to him because he looked like a young Harry Connick Jr. He was very attractive. There was only a few photos. In one, he was fishing. Another, he was next to a campfire. And another, he looked like he was at a party. So he looked attractive and I swiped on him and we matched. After chatting for a few days, the pair decided to meet up and met at a local bar. But she says her first impressions wasn't very favorable. I get there and I know where he's sitting and that he has a white shirt on. I'm looking and I see this guy in the corner. And when I saw, I, what I saw was I was expecting Harry Connick Jr. But it's not what I got. She continued, he looked nothing like his photos. He looked worn out. He was probably five years older than his photos were. She was disappointed. So after finishing her drink, she made her excuses and left. But the man was clearly unimpressed by the exit and sent her a bombard bombardment of cruel messages. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's not a, a great thing to do, really, is it? Like, I mean, you're going to get found out, aren't you? You know, I don't know why people do this because you're going to put a picture of somebody else or maybe when you were like 20 years younger and someone will click on your image and then when you turn up it's, it's like you're not the same they've got the front you know they've got some front to do that it's like i don't get it how does he expect to get away with it well they do some people do though don't they they just think yeah that they can they can put it off somehow yeah. give the gap yeah Crazy, or they think if I entice you with this photo, you'll look past the fact that I look nothing like it when you see me in real life. But by yeah. that point, you've already had that connection. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good story, though. Good story. What have you got for us, Zoe? I've got Texas sent out wild amber alert for vicious Chucky doll and his missing son. <laughs> so Texas issued a memorable amber alert Friday for the missing son of the vicious Chucky doll of horror movie fame. The message described Chucky, the star of the 1980s Chills classic Charles Play, as the 28-year-old red teen suspect in the disappearance of a six-pound, five-year-old son, Glenn. Glenn Ray was born in the film Cedar Chucky. Dad clocked in at 16 pounds and three foot tall in his description. Chucky, according to the alert, was last seen wearing a denim, blue denim overalls with a multicoloured striped shirt and wielding a huge kitchen knife. His race was listed as doll. The alert, typically sent out for missing children who may be in peril, was sent via email three separate times to subscribers of the Texas Alert System, reported Ken's 5 TV. The State Department of Public Safety later issued a statement saying the alerts were sent in error. This alert is a result of a test malfunction, said the test. We apologise for the confusion this may have caused and are diligently working to ensure this does not happen again. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> Texas sent out an amber alert saying that Chucky and his son were missing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Have you ever seen the Chucky films? Yeah. They're proper Chucky yeah. films. I haven't I seen any of the new ones. Afraid of the <laughs> it's so creepy, isn't it? Yeah, so, so I've not watched the newer ones, but yeah, the original one. My friend was so scared of that film. Yeah, my good lord, it's like proper, proper scary. And I think it came out in the nineties, didn't it? Eighties. Was it the eighties, Chucky? Wow. Um, 
Right, so we, um, no. <laughs> what, what do you know? What we're going to do actually on our on our Facebook page, uh, the ATM Club. Um, if anyone's um, not a member of the ATM Club, make sure you join it on Facebook. Um, I'll put a little survey on there um, later on, and I'll ask um, if you were swiping and you picked someone out that you really liked and arranged to meet them, and their picture was twenty years old. Would you be upset? Would you be annoyed with it? And we'll see what people say. That would be a, a nice little survey to put on there later. We'll I, I wouldn't even sit down at the table. I know. Can you imagine? It depends what they look like. If they've grown better with age, but like, do you know what I mean? It's, it's really... Um, it's, it's just, I've actually had it happen. Like you turn up and they look nothing like the picture. Nothing yeah. like what they came across in messages. Um, there was one I walked, went to a pub to meet them. Um, but actually, I've been talking to him for a little while. He picked me up and we were going to go to the pub for a drink. Well, he'd been finding messages and everything like that and picked me up, got in the car, and I couldn't understand a word he was saying. No way. <laughs> he was like German or something, and honest to God, he even had YouTube playing with, with a translator on it in oh, his car. Stop. Stop. So like, I, he, he goes out. He, honestly, I didn't understand a word he was saying. Um, the, the gist I got was, oh, where should we go? And I said, oh, we're just going to park down like the shore and like, we'll just chat. I wasn't in that car for five minutes. I oh sat there God. and he was trying to talk to me. I thought, right, I can't, I can't hear, a, like, I can't understand a word you're saying. <laughs> and um, there was this foreign music playing through the radio. Um, and I sat there and I did, like, the fake yawning. And oh, I was, he said, I should go for a drink. And I was like, no, just, just take me home. <laughs> so like all my friends had expected me going out on this date and I met I rung them when I got home they were like you're home ready you literally just left I was like yeah mate I, I couldn't understand a word he was saying oh my god love that <laughs> so yesterday we put on the ATM page um, the ATM club on Facebook about advice so um, loads and loads of people messaged um, their best advice that they have heard um, so we've got Linda Phillips here. Guilt is a wasted emotion. It serves no purpose. Love that. And also Linda Checkley has said, never drive the wrong way up the motorway. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's good advice, really, isn't it? That's uh, a bit dodgy if you do that. I've got Chris Patternight that says, delete your search history. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, Mike Portsmouth. All mushrooms are edible, but some of them only once. <laughs> <laughs> Lenny McFay, don't upset me and don't eat yellow snow. <laughs> Gain or Piers put a picture up saying, never pick a fight with women over 50. They're full of rage and sick of everyone else's shit. <laughs> like Sharon Tugby's done loads. Like what goes around comes around. People in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Sharon said I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, a thief is a liar and a liar is a thief. Yeah, yeah, like I that. saw that one. Like that. Um, Treat people how you want to be treated. The advice that I that I heard years ago made me laugh is um, the early bird catches the worm, but it's always the second mouse that gets the yeah. cheese. You've done that one loads lately, actually, because like 
I've heard you say that loads. <laughs> I love that. It's something that I was told years ago. I love John Nichols' one. You can't please everyone. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Chloe Osborne said, treat people how you want to be treated. Be kind always. And isn't she just? What a lovely lady she yeah. is, Chloe Osborne. Okay, so that rounds up our show for this week. Thank you to the lovely Chloe and Zoe, and thank you to the Five Star Bar. We've had some fantastic unsolved mysteries, ghost stories, and how great was Tony Parsons? He's amazing. Yeah, what he was, was amazing. Yeah. I could talk to him all day. Yeah, he was fantastic. I think we say that about everyone, though. <laughs> yeah, I know. So uh, that finishes off the show for this week, and we're going to be back uh, on Wednesday with John Nichols and. Um, what a brilliant show it was. Thank you both so much and uh, have a great weekend. And we'll you see too. you during the week.